This is The Weekly for Friday, June 7th. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Following the president's state visit to Great Britain, a prime minister who is officially out next month and renewed uncertainty over Brexit, what's next for the special relationship between our two countries? How will the next British prime minister govern? Will Brexit even happen? And what does it mean for our partnership between Washington and London? Questions we answer with Heather Connolly. She is currently the senior vice president and director of the Europe program at CSIS. During the George W. Bush administration, she served as the assistant secretary of state for European affairs. We begin, though, with some of the sounds from Normandy, France, as U.S., French and European allies remembering the sacrifices made 75 years ago, a turning point in the war, a moment that forged an even stronger bond between the United States and Great Britain. Taps, which always stirs emotions, part of the D-Day ceremonies in Normandy, France. Heather Connolly, as you hear that, as you reflect on what happened 75 years ago, how significant was it in terms of this so-called special relationship between the United States and Great Britain? Well, it uh, it brings tears to my eyes as I, I listen to that. Uh, it invokes thoughts of extraordinary courage and bravery, uh, service to country, that uh, America was very reluctant to enter this war. Prime Minister Winston Churchill worked very hard to start a special relationship with FDR to have the United States help the UK defeat Nazi Germany. And after the attack on Pearl Harbor, we entered the war. It took several years. Uh, Many Hundreds of thousands of Americans uh, fought so bravely, but it began with this core relationship with Great Britain, and I think we've seen that this relationship is more than just individual leaders and rhetoric. It is deep. It is meaningful. It is uh, a, a relationship between people. Um, that really transcends everything. So when we talk about the special relationship, I think we use the term so much, it somewhat cheapens it. And what we've seen through both the state visit and the events at Portsmouth and Normandy, how very powerful that relationship is and will long endure, even though leaders come and leaders go, it will, it will endure. And yet it has been tested over the years and certainly more recently. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, And uh, we had uh, deep disagreements. Uh, 1956, the Suez Canal crisis, my goodness, that was a a major challenge to that relationship. We have not seen eye to eye on how to respond to international crises and conflicts. We have counseled one another uh, when we have felt the other hasn't either acting too strongly in a way or not strongly enough in response. But it is such a deep relationship uh, with our intelligence communities, our, our military. We are so integrated with one another. When we don't agree 
on an issue, for instance, like Iran today, it feels very unnatural. We know uh, in the United States that if, we, if our allies are not with us, this is we are in an uncomfortable position. That's how uh, intrinsic the uh, allied relationship is. And among those who vividly remembers D-Day in World War II, Queen Elizabeth, she was 18 years old when the invasion took place. Her father was king. She became the queen in the 1950s, and so she has lived through this special relationship from World War II through today. And I want you to listen to what she said at the banquet that she hosted for President and Mrs. Trump at Buckingham Palace. Listen carefully to her words. As we face the new challenges of the 21st century, the anniversary of D-Day reminds us of all that our countries have achieved together. After the shared sacrifices of the Second World War, Britain and the United States worked with other allies to build an assembly of international institutions to ensure that the horrors of conflict would never be repeated. Read between the lines. What is she referring to? You don't even have to read between the lines. What she was referring to is this extraordinarily important historic military alliance, NATO, that it's the institutional architecture that the political and military leaders built during the Second World War. They were developing the plans for the post-World War II era, and then they developed them afterwards. And that these institutions are what binds us together and how we can protect our shared values, our freedom, our way of life that these instrument these institutions can't be taken for granted and what queen elizabeth said during that toast what prime minister may said during the press conference with the president trump what president macron said at normandy they were all saying the same thing this is american leadership and its values at its greatest president trump don't erode these institutions don't erode these alliances they're so important. And it was it was the theme of the entire uh, presidential visit. And so do you think it is a message that Donald Trump is hearing, not only NATO, but the U.N., the European Union and other alliances and institutions? You know, I, I think this was an incredibly moving trip for the president. Uh, and I think particularly both the uh, events uh, at, at Portsmouth and at Normandy, I think meeting the veterans that uh, risked so much for the freedoms we enjoy today, I think he was moved. I, the president still has strong concerns um, about multilateralism. He has called the European Union a foe. He has profoundly challenged NATO. Uh, so I don't know if that will end, but I hope this week he brings back home to Washington a deeper understanding of the values of these institutions and the essential role that America plays in all of them. And when we step away from them, we reduce ourselves and we reduce our allies. Because in a recent essay, you wrote the following, 75 years later, we are at risk of carelessly tossing away this rich inheritance. I, I think that's it. I, I think there's a there's a, a generation of Americans and many of them born uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Soviet Union, do not remember the extraordinary sacrifice that so many had to take to 
to protect all of our freedoms. And so, you know, why do we have NATO? Why do we pay so much and other allies don't? Why do we have this international system? Well, this struck this was structured to help stabilize uh, the world, so the uh, United States wouldn't have to go to war again. And in Europe, we've seen that stability for 70 years. But if we find it inconvenient or we don't like the burden of this, uh, these extraordinary institutions, walking away from them will just increase global instability, and it will reduce America's prosperity, and it will reduce our national security. And no commander-in-chief wants to do that. So we have to reinvest. But most importantly, we have to reinvest for a new generation. So my children have to care as deeply about NATO uh, as I do, and I have to pass that inheritance on to them. They'll interpret it in their own way, of course, but that's, that's what I hope this this 75th anniversary means that we pass this inheritance and for a new generation they understand what was at stake what was sacrificed and why we have to protect it and preserve it let me remind our listeners we are talking with heather Connolly. she is now with csis and you spent the first four years of the george w bush administration at the state department and george bush came into the white house without a lot of foreign policy experience how did you advise him and his Secretary of State, Colin Powell, on European affairs and European relations. And what advice would you give those in the State Department today with the current president? So I I was so blessed uh, in particular to, to work for uh, Secretary Colin Powell. Um, as General Powell, uh, chairman of the Joint Staff, he understood in the marrow of his bones and I think most military leaders do, that allies are so important to our victory on the battlefield, that uh, the United States has extraordinary military power. But when our allies join us uh, to meet a challenge, we are victorious. So, you know, he had served all over the world, Asia, Europe. He understood the value of these relationships. So that was such a, a natural and organic part of the experience. Uh, and, and certainly... What we saw after 9-11 was the most extraordinary outpouring of international support. Uh, NATO declared an Article 5, which was the first time in NATO's history, and that is an article in the NATO treaty that says an attack against one is an attack against all. When NATO was created, it was never even thought of that it would be America that would be attacked. We thought it would be our, our European allies, that we would have to come to their aid, and it was the other way around. It was an extraordinary moment. And yet shortly thereafter, the Iraq War was incredibly divisive, particularly to Europe. You had Central Europe that was more supportive of the U.S. and, of course, Western Europe, France and Germany, or remember the Freedom Fridays, and uh, it was very difficult. And, of course, our, our allies in the U.K., Tony Blair, was very, you know, very supportive of President Bush, and that came at great cost for the U.K. and certainly for his premiership. So we had both this extraordinary moment of uh, solidarity and uh, an equal moment of, of division. But I will say one thing, particularly in the I focused on Central Europe and Northern Europe when I was at the State Department. I, I think for me the most important speech that President Bush gave, at least in, in my experience in his presidency, was when it, his first international trip to Europe. He was in Warsaw, Poland, and he gave a historic speech. And what he was challenging was Europe. We need to enlarge NATO uh, to expand freedom, and it was something that wasn't so popular uh, with some European countries, but. 
despite even the divisions, NATO was enlarged and NATO was stronger for bringing freedom and prosperity to 100 million more Europeans. So it was a time of great solidarity, of division, and we were able to enlarge and strengthen European prosperity and security. So it was a combination of all those factors, I think. With regard, though, to President Trump, and you express some real concerns about his meeting with the prime minister of Hungary. Why? And what message did that send the UK and the rest of Europe? So um, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, um, he was prime minister actually uh, for year two under uh, President Bush uh, from 1998 to 2002. He returned as prime minister in 2010. And what Mr. Orban has, or the philosophy approached, he calls it uh, illiberalism. He has profoundly changed the democratic institutions in Hungary, reduced media freedom, or reduced the independency of of the judicial system, um, has constricted non-governmental organizations. Um, He has certainly uh, politically used anti-Semitism to support his political goals. And this is a very worrying trend. And this is, again, we can't take so many things for granted. And we see forces in Europe, these dark clouds that are gathering again, that are flirting with neo-fascism. And we have to deal with them very quickly. Hungary is a member of NATO, a member of the European Union, and they have been reducing their own democracy. So we have to engage with our allies to encourage them to, to get off that path. And what was so upsetting, um, the, President Trump not that he, if he meets with President, Prime Minister Orban, then he has a lot of tough messages to deliver. But he didn't. He celebrated Prime Minister Orban. He said he was a respected leader. And um, all that did was send a message to every leader around the world that it's okay to reduce democratic principles and institutions. And it's not okay. Because again, I'll, I'll come back right back to D Day. Americans fought to prevent those fascist, anti-democratic forces from conquering Europe. We cannot allow them to creep back in again. So we have to be, you know, we have to be on our toes. And and, um, what the Hungarian government has done is sort of a blueprint, and others are following that blueprint. They were an outlier eight years ago. Now they, unfortunately, are a growing political trend. So we have to be, we and Europe, it's not just the United States, have got to deal with these forces uh, very quickly. But political expediency seems to be what is... um, uh, much more fashionable than, you know, handling uh, values and democratic institutions and being very strong about why we have to support them. Let me turn to the looming issue facing Great Britain, Europe, and even the U.S. As Prime Minister Theresa May announcing last month she is stepping down. Her last official day, by the way, will be Monday, July 22nd. We'll talk about that process in just a moment. But here's what she told her country outside of 10 Downing Street in London. So I am today announcing that I will resign as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party on Friday the 7th of June, so that a successor can be chosen. I've agreed with the party chairman and with the chairman of the 1922 committee that the process for electing a new leader should begin in the following week. I have kept Her Majesty the Queen fully informed of my intentions and I will continue to serve as her Prime Minister until the process has concluded. It is, and will always remain, 
a matter of deep regret to me that I have not been able to deliver Brexit. It will be for my successor to seek a way forward that honours the result of the referendum. That was Theresa May announcing her resignation. She is now no longer the head of the Conservative Party, but she will remain as Prime Minister for about six weeks. Explain that process. So this is now a leadership contest within the Conservative Party. So these numbers fluctuate by day, but uh, there are approximately 11 conservative candidates that have at least signaled uh, formally that they would like to be considered in that leadership race. By Monday, June the 10th, uh, they have to formally submit and then they have to have, um, I believe it's at least six members of parliament from the conservative party that support their candidacy. That may eliminate some of those candidates. So through a process, they go through several rounds of elimination the members of parliament of the conservative party will whittle down uh, this candidate list to two finalists. And then those two finalists, um, by paper ballot, it goes out to the membership of the conservative party, which is about 120,000. They receive a paper ballot, they select uh, which of the two they would like, and then those results uh, should be announced uh, by, I think, the week of July the 22nd. So it, it the, the members of parliament reduce it down to the two finalists, and then the Conservative Party membership uh, will decide. And then we'll have a new prime minister by the end of July. Theresa May served as prime minister for three years. Why did she fail? What were her mistakes? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I, you know, I think in some ways uh, the failure predates her premiership. Um, you just have to look back 40 years. The Conservative Party has been in some form of an ongoing war with itself over Europe. It has brought down uh, five conservative prime ministers, Margaret Thatcher, John Major. Mo most of their premierships were ended because of a dispute over Europe. So this has been a longstanding issue. You know, I think uh, Theresa May um, thought that she could um, logically manage uh, this negotiation process. The problem is it, it, the negotiation process never really got out of the conservative party. She negotiated with the European Union. They negotiated a withdrawal agreement uh, based on the conditions that Theresa May uh, gave to the European Union. But she could never sell this to her own party. And so this continues to be a very divisive uh, issue, and I'm not sure it's done consuming conservative prime ministers. Uh, the other part, I think, the, the failure was that after Theresa May became prime minister, what she probably should have done was immediately gone to a cross-party negotiation. So immediately worked with the Labor Party and the other parties in, in the House of Commons, the Liberal Democrats, Lib Dems, and say, okay, we need, a, we need a parliament majority for the way forward. But she did not do that. She Her priority, which has been every other conservative prime minister's priority, is maintaining the unity of the party. And so now, this the last days, the last hours of her former premiership, her party is deeply divided, and now we have the Brexit party, this newly created party that Nigel Farage has just created, um, is dividing the Conservative Party again. 
And there is no majority in the House of Commons for a path forward. So even a new leader is going to face the exact same constraints that Theresa May faced. I think the difference is the likely uh, next prime minister will advocate for leaving the EU on October the 31st without a deal, but that is likely to be blocked in Parliament. So this is going to be uh, the continuation of what Theresa May struggled with for the last three years. And who did President Trump meet with when he was in London? Why, Mr. Nigel Farage. Indeed, you are correct. But the president, I will say, has been very consistent. He supports Brexit. And uh, John Bolton, his national security advisor, wrote an op-ed a a day or two before the uh, state visit, uh, exalting the benefits of the UK's departure from the EU. So this is something that he has very consistently supported. And he meets with those voices in the UK that are the most supportive of it. Again, also remember, Nigel Farage actually campaigned with the president uh, as he was a candidate. So there is a long relationship. And I fear the president probably hears more about Brexit from Mr. Farage and his colleagues than he probably does from the British government. Well, here's what President Trump and Prime Minister Theresa May said at their news conference in London earlier this month. And I seem to remember the, the president suggested that I sued the European Union, which uh, we didn't do. We went into negotiations and we came out with a good deal. Yeah, that's not such a I would have sued, but that's OK. <laughs> I would have sued and settled, maybe, but you never know. She's probably a better negotiator than I am, Jeremy. But you know what? She has got it in a sense, John. That deal is teed up. I think that deal is really teed up. I think they have to do something. And perhaps you won't be given the credit that you deserve if they do something. But I think you deserve a lot of credit. I really do. I think you deserve a lot of credit. Jeremy, by the way, is Jeremy Hunt. He is the British Foreign Secretary. But the the president loves to weigh in on domestic politics outside the U.S. He does. Uh, and and certainly he, he, he likes to comment on uh, leaders and how they're doing. Uh, he certainly not only uh, commented on Prime Minister May's uh, negotiating tactics and she would have played harder, hardball, uh, maybe she's gotten a better deal. He has commented on President Macron and his challenge with the demonstrators, demonstrations, the Yellow Vest movement. He has commented on Chancellor Merkel. And, uh, you know, so he he very much uh, does comment on their both uh, their challenges, certainly. um, And I think he tries to contrast that uh, with events that happened here in the U.S. And based on what we have been hearing and seeing, and I don't want to oversimplify this, but is it safe to say that uh, the French government very much would love to see Great Britain leave the European Union while the German government would like to see them stay in? Well, that's a little simplistic. Uh, It is more complicated than that. I think you see where uh, the German government, um, which has a much greater economic relationship, particularly in the auto sector with the UK, and of course, the German economy is so sensitive to exports, uh, certainly has a strategic patience uh, perspective to this. Give the UK some space. Maybe they'll change their mind. Maybe, you know, there's an opportunity. We can soften this. We don't want to have blowback on the European economy, the German economy. Uh, The French, and this is sort of, again, going back such a long time, sort of uh, Anglo-French tensions on, on so many things. But President Macron is growing increasingly frustrated that because 
the UK cannot articulate what it wants and then and then get it through its own parliament, that the longer this goes on, the more it ties up the European Union in knots. And Mr. Macron has a much bigger vision for the future of the EU, a much more tightly integrated project. And I think his impatience and sort of his view of, we need to actually help the UK leave because they're stuck. They can't go forward. They can't go backwards. So perhaps we should stop extending these deadlines. Perhaps the best thing we can do, the tough love, is to encourage this to happen. And then we can sort of pick up the pieces from there. I, I think there's there's sympathy for both positions, to be honest with you, across the EU. Um, but let me just be very clear. This is hugely impactful. You're talking about the second largest EU economy leaving the EU. That makes the EU a, a lesser body, both economically as well as militarily and from a foreign policy perspective. It also makes the UK a lesser value um, because with the weight of the EU, it's much more powerful and, and stronger. So this is a lose-lose proposition. And the country that also loses is the United States. So this is not something we should celebrate. Um, I think if we um, were able to, the U.S. could have played a very quiet mediation role, potentially, in trying to help both parties not you know, reach a disaster, but to try to see where they should work together. I don't think that has been the, the role that the Trump administration wanted to play. But again, I'm going to go back to the D-Day uh, construct here. We, this is our project, Europe uh, and its unity and its peace and stability. Um, the sacrifice by the United States was extraordinary. We can't allow them either to tear themselves apart. Uh, we have to encourage what we can of their unity. So it's, uh, this is a really big deal. And I think sometimes this story has gone on so long and it's so complicated and it's hard to follow and it changes day to day. I think sometimes we sort of fail to appreciate how extraordinary this is. We've never, we don't have a historical experience of a withdrawal from the European Union. We only know it as an enlarging body. And this is a very important country that's leaving. A moment ago, you used the word disaster. Are we heading for disaster with regard to Brexit and Great Britain? Well, we don't know. I, I mean, honestly, um, when the European Union gave the UK a six-month extension, uh, to try to sort it out. Uh, the message from Donald Tusk, who's the European Council president, said, don't waste this time. Use it, get clarity, get the, uh, get the legal agreements through Parliament, and let's make this as a soft a landing as possible. The problem has been now, uh, the UK is now focused only on a leadership contest. Uh, it's not progressing uh, in, in resolving Brexit. So we don't know. We, I mean, there's sort of three choices. Um, either the, the leadership will say they're going to exit without a deal, and they're going to go to WTO tariffs. We have no idea what that, it could be a pretty big economic global impact. Maybe it won't be as big as we anticipate, but there's, this is going to be a, they don't have all the, uh, the, the border issues resolved. Certainly there's massive impact for the Republic of Ireland and, and Northern Ireland. Um, or you could see where um, the UK, the parliament forces another extension and we could kick this into the long grass again. Or you could potentially see where there's, there's a change. Uh, this could be you know, leading to an early election, so not just a conservative leadership contest, where you'd have a new government that would revoke 
uh, Article 50, which was the letter that started the process of the UK seeking to depart the EU, maybe stopping the process. I mean, I would say the no deal scenario is greater uh, of those three, but you can't discount any of those. Um, and so we are fastening our seatbelts because once the new conservative prime minister is in place and he runs into the same he or she, but I think it's a he, will run into the same roadblocks that Theresa May did, they come back to the same conditions. They still don't have a majority to get it through the House of Commons, as I see it. Well, let me get your reaction to what Niall Gardner told us uh, a few months ago. He, of course, is at the Heritage Foundation. He is a former resident of London and heads up the Margaret Thatcher Center here in Washington. A no deal is supported by the vast majority of Conservative Party members according to opinion polls uh, and and is the you know the most popular uh, position among conservative party supporters also a yougov poll earlier this week showed that um, about 44% of britain support a no deal 42% are against uh, and and so public opinion is shifting towards a, a no deal but I, I think in practice a no deal would mean that britain is a truly sovereign country again and I think Britain will do just fine under a no deal. And I, I don't think the sky is going to fall in that uh, we're going to have some sort of, you know, apocalypse now for Britain. I think Britain will do just fine in a no deal scenario. Heather Connolly, agree or disagree? Well, I think Niall is right about the Conservative Party and, and their uh, leanings toward certainly uh, a brighter future uh, for the UK outside of the EU. I, I think the passage of time, though, and uh, the UK was forced to hold uh, elections for the European Parliament. And what we saw in that um, result was actually, when you cobble together all the parties that support the UK remaining in the EU, it was actually greater than the vote for those uh, who supported parties to leave the EU. So I, I think public opinion, actually, the broader public opinion outside the Conservative Party, is actually changing. I, I think there's, it's still going to be tight. Uh, it's not, you know, a huge swing. But I think there's now a growing sense of remaining, maybe, uh, more powerful. And even some of the candidates in the Conservative Party leadership contest, Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary, even Michael Gove, the Environmental Secretary, have been suggesting no deal would be a disaster, so sort of using my terms, or trying to seek an extension to try to manage these things. Um, but again, this is just, there. Uh, this is the hardest thing to describe to people. You know, in our political spectrum, we have a left and a right. In the UK, there, it, there's no really left and right. It's leave or remain. This has become the decisive uh, factor. And those parties that have the crystal clear, you know they are about leave and you know they're about remain, they're doing the best. It is the Conservative Party which is divided. Uh, it is the Labor Party which is divided. They're actually being harmed by public, you know, public opinion doesn't support them because they don't have that clarity. So, and we just, we simply don't know if it's going to be catastrophic economically, uh, should there be a no deal uh, out, or we just suspect there's so many questions um, that there's going to be certainly a great disturbance economically, and it could set off a chain of events. And remember, we have a uh, we're now having a global trade war with China. Uh, we're tariffing lots of things. Europe European economy is slowing down. The Chinese economy is slowing down. Our indicators are getting a little soft. So you add potentially a No Deal Brexit on top of this. In addition to there's lots of rumblings between Italy and the European Union. 
the third largest debt market in the world is Italian. I mean, we could see a perfect storm at the end of this year that, you know, Brexit may not be the global catastrophe, but it may be the cherry on top of a Sunday of a, of a global economic picture, picture that's been darkening for quite a while. So we just don't know, but our intuition tells us that this much confusion and uncertainty is not good. So complicated and uncertainty for the months ahead for yep. Great Britain. For sure. Complete this sentence as we look back at D-Day and look ahead at this special relationship. The state of relations between the United States and the UK is what? It, it, is, it is challenged. Um, and I think the ironic part of all of this through, through the whole Brexit debate is that I think we will find that the UK is actually more European in outlook and in its economic positioning than we think. If the U.S. forces the United Kingdom to choose between Europe and the U.S., whether that's on issues like Huawei or issues on agriculture or other issues, I'm not entirely sure I know how the United Kingdom will choose. So they don't want to be put into that position. So this relationship is strong historically, but we can't take it for granted. And there are challenges ahead and we need to do everything we can to make sure that through Brexit, that we can have a stronger bilateral relationship with the UK and multilateral relationship with the European Union. A very interesting conversation. Hopefully we can have you come back again. That'd be great. Thank you. Heather Connolly, we appreciate your insights. She is now Senior Vice President and Director of the Europe Program at CSIS here in Washington, D.C., she served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State during the first four years of the George W. Bush administration. A reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app on the web at cspan.org. We thank you for listening.